morning afternoon whenever you are listening this is the drunken ux podcast this is episode number 16 for those of you keeping track at home and i am your illustrious host michael feenan my co-host aaron hill i'm not quite as illustrious i got a haircut so maybe i'm lustrous just like i have like a sheen you're, you're not as illustrious you're just lustrous haircut i'm shiny you should get that checked out man <laughs> hey Episode 16 of the Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by your, your friendly mapping folks over at NewCloud. You can check them out at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's in you, cloud.com. Uh, let's see. I guess you should run by Twitter or Facebook. You can check us at slash drunkenux. We are the same thing at both places. We want to make it easy or hit us on Slack. Go by drunkenux.com slash Slack. It'll plug you right in. We got redirects and fancy things there to take care of that. Um, we're smart. We we think ahead. We plan ahead for this stuff. What are you drinking tonight? Let's see. Oh, drinks. Drunken UX. Yeah. Yes. Um, and Aaron, refresh yeah. me on this because as I sat here and and got my glass started, I realized maybe I've drank this before. <laughs> but have I had Monkey Shoulder on the show before? No. Does that sound familiar? It does not. No. Monkey Shoulder is uh one of the only only blended scotches that I really enjoy. Um, uh, it's a Speyside blend, um, of three. I'm looking at the bottle here to see if they actually list, uh, Kenenvi, I know is one of them. I think Balvenie is one and somebody else is one. Yeah. It doesn't say on the bottle. Um, it's a very good, rich, sweet kind of blend that has good character, good flavor. And I've just found and it's super affordable. It's like 31 bucks a bottle. Oh, wow. Um, For scotch, that's really cheap. Yeah, if you want a nice entry level scotch, I it's a great way I think to get started. So that's that is what, and plus it's it's called Monkey Shoulder, right? Um, that it literally has monkeys <laughs> in the bottle. So. Is it like tequila, where like you know with a or no, sorry, with was it tequila or mezcal? You get a worm in the bottom. Is it like that, where there's like a little piece of a monkey shoulder in the bottom oh. of the, the the flask? I don't. I hope not. If if you. Definitely like the monkey's paw. Don't go opening a locking door while drinking that. <laughs> if you eat the monkey's shoulder, does it make you like super drunk? <laughs> it, what's what's the, the monkey brain? Isn't that like a virility thing or something like that? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so I don't know. If you work your way down to the shoulder, I don't know what that gets you. <laughs> you can... Aaron, what do you got, my friend? Oh, just a boring vodka tonic tonight. Nothing, nothing exciting. Tonic. Yeah. Um, I I was out the other night at my local watering hole, and we, we tested our bartender on his uh, martini-making skills. How did he do? Um, so, um, it was all right. Did you ask I him for the Drunken UX special? Okay. No, they... You know, cause I, and I mentioned this. Uh, you cannot get Lillet here <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> Like nobody has it, so there's no like matching that. This was just a a plain old vodka martini, dirty vodka, vodka martini. So, um, mm-hmm. we do have a special guest with us this week. I want to introduce Jeff Stevens, and I believe he is also joining in on the 
imbibing festivities. What do you got over there, Jeff? Well, hello. Um, Hi, Jeff. I am not drinking anything. Hello. I'm not drinking anything as as sophisticated or as illustrious as your scotch there, Michael. <laughs> I, I'm I'm sticking to Florida classics, so I'm having fuzzy navels. Ooh. My fuzzy navels are made from Tito's handmade vodka, and I cannot pronounce this. Dick Cooper? Dick Cooper? I'm Dequ- assuming Dequ- that... Dequ- that Dequ- there you go. Dick Cooper. Yeah. I think that's what they call it. You can tell how very little I go out and actually buy alcohol. (laughs) I have some peach And I've got some 100% premium Florida orange juice with my daily recommended amount of calcium and vitamin D. So it's a healthy label I'm downing here today. That's excellent. I'm a big (laughs) fan of the Tito's. uh, Tito's is great. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so... I've I've got to have some fun with this because if you can't make fun of yourself, I don't know what you can make fun of. Um, I've been rebuilding, so to speak, my office. I've been tearing everything apart. I'm painting walls. I'm getting ready to lay new flooring. And I, I've been moving all of the pieces. So I was shifting desks around and I was going through an old cabinet and emptying stuff out because I'm a pack rat. Um, and I found a stack of CDs, CD-ROMs. Um, and most of them, as I'm going through, I'm like, A, they're just scratched to hell and back. Like, they are completely useless by this point. Um, and we're talking, like, old StarCraft discs and Command and Conquer covert operations. Oh, um, I think I have those, actually. Tank yeah. And <laughs> I'm just, I'm tossing. I'm going through, I'm tossing, I'm tossing, because they're no use to me at this point. Um, and I come across a disc. And I've got it here in front of me. It is the Tradition and Challenges to Tradition in Arts, Society, Science, and Society. The Kansas Regents Honors Academy, Emporia State University, Emporia, Kansas, June 14th to July 3rd, 1998. I got this um, because I was a nerd. And the nerds in <laughs> Kansas, when they are sophomores and or juniors, um, schools can, I guess, nominate, if my memory is right, three students that go to this program every year. And it changes. It goes from university to university. And you go, you spend like three weeks living at the university. They give you a dorm room. They, you know, do the whole shebang. You take actual college courses for actual college credit. Um, It's, I mean, it's actually an incredible opportunity uh, for somebody who is smart like me and that enjoys spending their summers learning instead of doing literally anything else. Um, I bring it up because they sent us these CDs uh, later in the year, and they're like a a culmination of all of the things that we did. And so I stuck it in to see, A, if it was any good, because it wasn't a case. So I was like, oh, that's, it's not scratched up. And I open it up, and there's a couple folders, and I, I pull one up. And for starters, they included Netscape Communicator on it, just in case you didn't have a web browser. Um, so they left a copy of the Netscape folder on it just for you if you needed to open it up that way. <laughs> and then and I'll I'm gonna include in the show notes, I'll throw a screenshot of this up, but they the the memory book thing was done in HTML. Like the the guy who built this for us wrote it up as web pages and they had pictures of like all the people. Um first off, 1998 Michael Feenan 16 years old, was a player when it came to 
<laughs> going to nerd camp and flirting with girls because every single picture I could find of myself outside of my ID photo in somehow involved me flirting with a girl. So <laughs> go me. couldn't do it anywhere else, but I knew how to talk to girls at nerd camp. So I had that going for me. Um, but it's also it's so funny because these pictures are tiny, tiny. Um, I, I want to say they were probably using, what was it? The Sony Mavica? Was that the mm -hmm. the camera that he used to have? That, like the one that you would stick the floppy disk in? Oh my God, the floppy disk. Yes, I remember that. And it would shoot at like 640 by 480 or something like that. Oh yeah, they're, it's, they're super tiny. Um, and I'm, I'm like looking at them and I'm thinking, I, I'm sure that's me. But my face is like four pixels on the photo. Uh, it's it's so wild to go back and see that. Uh, I said you can't zoom in and enhance on that. Uh, I I tried. Um, it it did not do me a flatter. That's for sure. <laughs> um, it's it's funny to just kind of think about in this context that there's that running joke that you know say what you will about um you know kids today or whatever. None of my stupid stuff was ever you know posted the Facebook or anything when I was a kid. And this is like I, the oldest that I know of example of like me in digital form somewhere. Um, and it's, it makes me wonder, you know, in terms of what, you know, a kid born today is going to have of their life come my age at that point. Um, it's, you know, it's the nostalgia bug biting you a little bit, uh, but it's also just an interesting you know, flow of that technology and, and how we go about doing this stuff now and how progressive ESU was in 1998. I mean, my God, to not only take the photos and everything, but to literally build us a CD out of web pages to send us. Um, I mean, that's actually kind of cool. So yeah, that's pretty neat. Yeah, that's all. I just thought it was funny. Neat. Cool. <laughs> um, Folks, we're talking about content strategy tonight, though. That is our main subject of choice. Um, in the broad sense, we're not going to go super like specific on this, but we wanted to talk just generally about what it is, how it fits into sort of the, the big overall umbrella of, of web development. And then coming back after the break, we're going to talk about tools and resources and things that you can use to help you execute on content strategy by that point. And to help us with this conversation, um, we've invited Jeff Stevens up to talk with us. Jeff is the Assistant Web Manager of Content and Social Strategy at the University of Florida Health. Um, dude is a fantastic speaker. He goes, he's a speaker at all the conferences. He's a singer of all the karaoke. He's a traveler of all the places. The, the guy is a, a genuine renaissance man of web and fun. Um, so I thought he would be a great guy to bring on. Jeff, I'm so glad you would sit down with us on this late evening well, i appreciate the invitation i'm glad to be here um with an intro like that i hope i do not disappoint <laughs> i've i've seen your karaoke videos you also invented karaoke playing the, the hashtag right was that you no i i was not the inventor of karaoke playing karaoke playing as a hashtag was actually uh actually coined by uh Carlin Borisenko. Uh, okay. And is that like strategy car? Like, do you actually, do you have to be in a plane to do karaoke plane? <laughs> you do not have to be in a plane. Uh, actually, it is a, uh, 
it was a mistyping of a hashtag for karaoke plan uh, is how oh. it came up. And the, an unfortunate addition of a vowel, or we should say a fortunate addition of a vowel, is then what led to karaoke plane being the hashtag uh, for that particular event. Um, <laughs> uh, karaoke plane is just, uh, it's an impromptu group of people who originally were at the uh, Higher Education Web Professionals Association conference, uh, started in 2010. Uh, they pick a date during that conference where just some people go out to do karaoke. And that first year it was uh, 30 people. Hmm. Uh, it's from 30 people to last year, it was about 250 people went to karaoke playing, uh, which is insane. Uh, I'm still over how that happened. <laughs> you almost need to reserve a conference room just for that at this point. Cause you know, I mean, most of those people are spectators at this point. Yeah. Most of them are spectators. But one thing that I've, I've noted by going to it is, there are people that go who say they've never sung karaoke before and have no interest at all in getting on the stage. And by the end of the evening, they are on the stage. And more often than not, they are they are good singers. And it's it's the audience. And really, it's the same it's the same crew that's at the at that high ed web conference every year. It's a it's an incredibly supportive, collaborative atmosphere, and it translates to that audience and. That actually, for a long time, that was the only karaoke I went to during the year. Uh, since then, I've tried to branch out. It's, karaoke is always something I wanted to do. That was the first place that I really felt safe doing it in front of an audience. I I, I haven't been to Hyatt Web, but I did go to PSU Elements, and I know there's a lot of uh, cross pollination from the Hyatt Web crowd. And I I did do karaoke. Actually, Jeff, were you, weren't you there? I think you were there for that. I was there. Two years at yeah. at, at uh, PSU Web, I think that might be where we first met. Maybe, yeah. It was when uh, Scott Stratton was the keynote. Yep. Yeah, yep, I was okay. there. Yeah. Okay. So was that karaoke plane? Did I accidentally stumble into karaoke plane? That was a karaoke plane. Yeah. I I, okay. I keep using the hashtag whenever I go to a conference, and there is karaoke. Um, but in general, almost every time that that happens, it is the same people, a lot of the same people who are at high ed web. So I think it, it travels with that group of people. I've been to other conferences where I suggest karaoke and it falls flat. People are like, "Uh -uh, (laughs) WordPress camps have a very strong karaoke outing that happen at those as well is what I've heard. So Jeff, you've been, you've been at, uh, university of Florida for, a lot of years now, haven't you? Um, many, many. I can never keep many. track of who moves where. So, <laughs> I my my entire career in web has been well. For there, there was a year before I got to UF where I nominally did web work. I was a I was an intern at a local uh, rechargeable battery factory here in uh, in Gainesville. And they decided that they wanted to do an e-commerce site and they handed it over to me as the marketing intern to do the design for that website. Uh, We will not speak (laughs) of that design and what it actually looked like, Uh, but it came together and it did lead to my first job at the University of Florida, which was as webmaster for student financial affairs. Um, And I started there in 2001. I was there till about 2005. 
and then I was webmaster for the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences until uh, 2010. And then I've been part of the web services team at UF Health since that date. So uh, going on 18 years now at the awesome. University of Florida. And so you've been like really focusing <laughs> in on the the content and social strategy part of your job now for roughly the last five years or so, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, before that, I was very much an army of one where I had to do all things web. Uh, for a while there at the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, we had a bit of a budget crunch, and I was not only doing that, but I was also drafting press releases. It was a two-person uh, communications office for a while. No, I was going to say, what then what is the composition, so to speak, of your office now as it stands? Sure. We have a uh, we have 12 individuals in our office right now. Uh, we have uh, we have a dedicated team of programmers, um, uh, four back-end programmers and two front-end programmers. Um, and then we have a content slash uh, training kind of office. Uh, we have a training coordinator for our content management system. We have a web content coordinator who helps with editing content on our primary site a social media uh, coordinator, a halftime social media intern, and then myself. Uh, I oversee those individuals except for the trainer who who reports to the director that, of That is services. impressively well-stocked, actually, from, you know, when you talk to a lot of people, not just in higher ed, but, you know, anywhere, really. Uh, yeah, that's yeah I, I, I credit that really to our, our web services manager when we first uh, – we started the consolidation of everything at UF Health into a centralized uh, multi-site WordPress instance um, in 2010, um, and he put together the proposal of what it would take to do it in-house uh, and took that to senior leadership, and senior leadership had the, uh, the vision and forward thinking to see that that was the better way to go than looking at an external vendor to do this work, and, uh, and we've We've benefited from having a very strong relationship between the CIO, our vice president of communications, and our senior vice president of health affairs. They were all in agreement that this was the direction that made the most sense for the entire organization. And we've been extraordinarily lucky. Our team wasn't that big when we first started out, but they've allowed us to grow the team as our as our needs have expanded. Uh, in those intervening years, we've gone from not only managing the external web presence of the system, we also maintain the intranet uh, for the Health Science Center. And now we're also maintaining a new directory system, which helps to feed all of the profiles uh, for our primary website. And then hopefully eventually would take the place of all of the individual uh, directory systems that you have on various different individual websites across our multi-site install. Oh, good luck with that. <laughs> Thank you. Do you find that the fact that you have such an established department like that is kind of indicative of an organization that supports um, like your professional opinion as far as web goes? You know, Do you know what I mean? Like in higher ed, Michael and I talked about this on the higher ed episode a while ago. Sometimes mm -hmm. it feels like our opinions aren't respected as subject matter experts. <laughs> no, no I, I, to I totally understand what, what you mean by that. Um, I think, I think it varies. Uh, I think, I think from our top level leadership and from 
the individuals that we work with on a day-to-day -day basis for our primary website. We certainly do have that subject matter expertise that mm -hmm. they do rely on. Um, and for a number of our sites as well, but like in any organization, when you talk about a decentralized system where you have hundreds of sites in there, of course, there will be a few sites where there will be individuals in that system who have run their website for so long, uh, <laughs> they might have hired their own internal people, they might have worked with external experts in the past before. That Those are the units that it does take a lot more time to build that kind of rapport and trust with. And we've had a good success record with that. Sometimes that did take a number of years. Um, and there's some units that we still are working working with in that regard where sometimes sometimes we're, we've got a little friction. Uh, but we all understand that we're trying to make the web better. Uh, and we work from a data perspective. If the data shows that we are being successful in what we're doing, then we'll, we'll push for that and we can get that senior uh, leadership buy-in eventually uh, in those cases. I think it's it's worked remarkably well, um, and it it is very weird to be in that situation given how long I worked as an army of one, where I was very much in that other position that you talked about, where I was not considered a subject matter expert. I might not even have considered myself at that time a subject matter expert because I hadn't really been put in a position of authority where I had to formulate what I was thinking in a way that I had to sell it to other people. Uh, in those positions, I was very much more an employee who was taking taking orders from the person who above me, and they didn't see me in a role where I would have an opinion that they should listen to. So uh, that I do think is a key critical issue in, in our systems uh, for higher education. It's something that we can still see today, like in our decentralized system that if you have like 700 websites and you have an individual who might be editing a website, but that's only one fifth of their FTE to actually edit the website, hmm. they're not put in a position where they have authority over what the content model for that website is. They are beholden to whoever is their, their chair or their dean about what they do on that website. And to a certain extent, all they have to rely on is what we've given them as training. And if, as long as you don't have a system in place that allows you to have some sort of uh, say in that governance as well, they don't really have that authority. Uh, so that's what I kind of see as the role of a content strategist in, in a decentralized system like that, that we'll see in a lot of higher education institutions is to be that person that they can go back to for best practices. And if they needed me to come in, could do it in a way that wouldn't necessarily jeopardize their job because I don't want to get anybody fired <laughs> for making the decision, but that they can come back and say, well, Jeff is the person that trained us and Nina, our training coordinator told us this was best practice. Web services handed us these guidelines and then we can be the person that can take some of that heat if we tell them you really shouldn't do it this way and you should do it this other way. Mm. Uh, and sometimes you'll win those battles and sometimes you won't because there's always politics involved. But uh, our end goal is to leverage what we can where we can. And when we have successes there, tout those successes to those groups that might have been resistant so they can see the benefits in doing what we asked. And eventually you can start turning the ship that way. So talk a, a little bit about um, when it comes to all of these like interconnections with your office and, and the others in particular, when we talk about content, you know, there is this sort of belief that 
anything front facing is always marketing related. What is your relationship with whoever is in charge of your marketing? Sure. So, um, almost almost exclusively, the content that we handle on a day to day basis is for our hospital site, which is at ufhealth.org. So this is a this is not the academic side. This is the uh, our patient focused content that we're aiming towards individuals who need to make a healthcare appointment at a primary care clinic, a secondary care clinic, uh, to find out about our hospital, et cetera. Uh, and we have a firm dotted line at that point with both, uh, we're in the communications department, uh, but we have a big dotted line to IT, of course. Um, and we get our content both from the news and publication side, and then we also get it from the hospital marketing team. Um, so we work in close conjunction with them to find a balance uh, for the content that we put on the website. Uh, our marketing team works with individual clients uh, in each of those service lines. So if you had a marketing rep that say is representing cardiology, uh, they meet with the cardiology department. They find out what the business goals are for the next year, what uh, what they need to do in terms of patient education, uh, and what information they want to communicate to the patients. They'll put together a marketing plan. They'll write copy to support that marketing plan. They'll send it over to us. Then we work with both those cart with the marketing rep and what what our best practices are for the website and then find where there are commonalities and what works within the system and what we might need to change in order to follow what our content strategy model was to begin with. Awesome. Um, and I know folks at home pro are probably asking, when are you going to talk about the content strategy of all of this? <laughs> I wanted to make sure we, we talked about these interconnections because content strategy is not the same thing as saying content tactics. And in web in particular, it's, you know, when you're a freelancer or a solo type person, or even somebody just on a small team, you tend to be very reactionary and you don't think about plans. You don't think about strategy. You don't even think about tactics, even though that's kind of what you're doing. Um, strategy is telling you why you're doing things and, and how it's accomplished. The tactics are telling you what you're doing. You know, they're the individual pieces of it. Um, and so I wanted to kind of lead us into this because content strategy ends up fitting in between so many pieces of this topic in terms of um, phrases like content marketing and integrated marketing. You have web strategy. Even when we start talking about disciplines like information architecture, these are all things that end up showing up in content strategy all the time. And it's not that one is superior or inferior to another um, or anything like that. It's just that these disciplines and, and these concepts do have a lot of overlap. And so I want to, I want to spend some time here before we go to break, talking a little bit about what exactly we mean when we say content strategy and what exactly that, or how that differentiates itself from just somebody walking in, because this was, um, we, we really started talking about this topic around 2009, 2010, um, and in that intervening period, there have been a lot of conversations about 
aren't you just talking about marketing? <laughs> Isn't that all this is? <laughs> this, this whole this whole thing reminds me of last episode with Greg and we we're trying to define like what design philosophy is versus principles like, design. Yeah. The, the principles versus philosophies argument, yeah. Design anything else. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk about that. Let's let's right. do that. Yeah. Um because helping people understand this, you know, when we because when I think about projects and uh, I, I'm going to refer back to the mysterious project that I've said on other episodes that I haven't actually told you what it is yet. I'll show you when it's done. Uh, <laughs> but the, we've got a project going on at work right now where content is <laughs> n- not just a, a significant part of it. it. It is the part of it. And one of the very first things that I asked when we started it was, okay, what does this stuff look like? Um, and we talk about, you know, there, there are these phrases we throw around, right? Like mobile first, you know, or in, you know, inclusive design, just build it, you know, for everybody and things like this. And there's mm-hmm. so many ways you go about building things, but this is much broader than that. And it's, I think, um, much more important in the sense of you can't decide how to build something if you don't know what is going into it. And we've spent so many years as an industry plugging in lorem ipsum text into pages and designs that you end up inevitably at the end of that project looking at stuff you know a blog post let's say where your blog layout didn't consider the fact that your title is going to go two lines and that seems like an obvious simple thing and yet almost everything i ever work on something like that happens somewhere and it's something very simple um it's it it's a chunk of excerpt that goes too long or too short. It's a block of elements that nobody thought about the stuff going into it. And so that's why I, when we think about content strategy, it sort of creates a lot of these underpinnings. And then it also tells us how people are going to work with it over time. Um, you know, is it something that's going to be edited once versus edited all the time? Is it something that's going to be created mm-hmm. over and over versus something that's going to just be evergreen? Um, so I think that's important. And I've I've already explained way too much of it without talking to my fellow co- cohorts here, co-hosts, cohort, co-host. Um, so, <laughs> and Aaron, I don't know. I want to, I, I want to lean on you for a second too, because you've, you've got your diapers for good. Um, what's <laughs> sure diaper base. <laughs> Diaper base at Ruby for I, I'm I'm interested in how you guys approach that in particular because of you know you're you're building basically a web app. It's a it's a utility that people are designed to use, which means a lot of your content yes. ends up being user generated or, or data is user generated in that sense. Um, and what is what what approach do you guys yes. use when you start thinking about? how you build an element into your app or how you accommodate, you know, what's going to show up on the front end to the user. We, we talk heavily with the stakeholders. We, we have about a half dozen stakeholders who are in our closed beta right now. And we meet with them regularly and talk about what things they actually need to know on either a day-to-day weekly basis or a quarterly basis for the reporting. The, the reporting part was a big part of that. Um, and then we take that information and then figure out like, well, you know, how do you, how would you like that to be reported? And the thing we run into the most often with this, the biggest problem or not problem, but challenge is that a lot of time 
the the stakeholders have trouble even envisioning um, what they would really like. Ideally, all they can think of is what they're familiar with and what they can imagine. Like, oh, well, this is probably possible. I guess you know. I guess you can show this in a table format. When in reality, like having some kind of like visualization or something as a graph might be even hugely more useful. They just haven't thought of that, and it's nothing. I mean, this is our job to to think of these things for them, but just even figuring out like what they need, sometimes they don't even know what they need. <laughs> um, so that that's I think I mean it's it's all like an uh, an internal application that's only used by the people that are using it. It's not doesn't have like a public facing component to it yet. So that, that's kind of a nice thing, at least, is that the everybody that's going to be consuming the content is going to be the people we're talking with directly for now. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, uh, I think you are going to have an incredible handle on this other piece of strategy, which is the governance piece of it. And, you know, working in higher ed as, as so many of us can attest to the, the governance side of who does what, how things get signed off on, how stuff is reviewed, you know, who gets the call when something isn't right or who is responsible for keeping things up to date, um, which some of that is, of course, content lifecycle stuff as well. But who's in charge? Um, what is your approach from a governance standpoint? Um, you know, what's your model look like and how have you approached some of those occasionally very difficult questions of, you know, going against the grain, so to speak? <laughs> Oh, oh, that's a that's a tough and loaded question. Uh, yeah, and I, to our friends at home, I want to warn you all that um, Jeff has not seen these questions ahead of time. So if we have to give him a second to think about things, that's okay. It's uh, that that's my fault, not his. <laughs> we do gotcha journalism here. Is, at Drunken is it UX. too late to use the uh, the voice modulator? And you have help. <laughs> what we do. Uh, so, uh, like any large decentralized system, we have a lot of content authors. We probably have about 1,600 content authors right now across our uh, 700 or so sites. Uh, from, from, a, from a governance perspective, we, we monitor from a, uh, from a high level. Uh, we have an individual who is the admin for each site, and then there's probably a series of people who then are secondary admins for each one of those sites. But the, the main admin is the individual who is the primary responsible person for that uh, page. We, we probably work pretty closely with the individual colleges, and then I'd say like the first tier level sites that are underneath those. So uh, every... 16 to 18 months or so, they will ask us to help with doing a heuristic content audit of their site where we'll come back and identify some problem areas that they have on their pages. Uh, and we, we work very hard on a model where we don't make those edits for them. We produce the report indicating what the issues are and what need to be fixed, but then we hand that over to that admin and their admin team to make the changes. Uh, with the philosophy that if we're the individuals who make the changes, they'll not become familiar enough with the content management system and with what we're telling them as theory and best practice to have it ingrained as something that they want to do on their own. Uh, 
the only time where we move outside of that model is in emergency situations where somebody needs us to come in right away and then we'll do it. But we we'll still produce the report and give them the report as an after to it and say, these are the changes we made and why we made them. Right. We have a, a training system that we have in place right now. We've had, given some thought to modifying that training system, especially off of the work that uh, Shelly Keith did while she was at the, uh, the University of Mary Washington. Uh, she had a more robust uh, governance system where individuals would be requised on later dates about best practices and going back to those. On the primary site, we are the final arbiters about the content that happens on ufhealth.org as a whole. So from a governance perspective, we have kind of a closed system there where we're the gatekeepers. So we're, we're allowed to review everything that goes up on the site and make recommendations about the issues that might be there from, a, uh, from any type of accessibility or usability issue before it goes on the page. Uh, and we we maintain all of the structure of how those pages are set up. So um, that's been kind of a closed system there. It, this is a little outside of the conversation, but I just want to clarify and make sure I remember right. Accessibility is actually also part of your particular responsibility, right? Uh, I would say at the at the beginning, it was primarily my role, but I'd say it's morphed over the last eight years that it's really responsibility of everybody on our team than just me. Uh, our our front-end designer team is really on top of that as well uh, from, a, from a perspective of making sure what they're putting together is meeting accessibility requirements. I'm still the, probably the person that's going to uh, drop the hammer on people the most if I find something that is uh, not <laughs> within accessibility. Uh, but in general, on our websites, that's not been as much of an issue with us in a locked template that we are using throughout the system. Uh, in general, I find those more particularly around social media, which becomes a harder thing, which is the other giant pillar in my office. In addition to content strategy for the sites, I'm also responsible for social strategy at UF Health. Um, and I'd say our last big discussion about that was making sure that we were closed captioning all of our videos in the system. So we, we had to go back last year and write up a new, a new set of uh, policies around that and what the workflow would look like to make sure that all videos we were creating for social platforms were meeting those accessibility requirements. I'm almost envious of how like deeply and completely you guys seem to be addressing some of these issues that is a rare commodity in this day and age at this point. Um, I, I want to point out too, um, because there's, there's something I always think about with governance and um, a, a friend of all of ours, Mark Greenfield has been talking about governments for what, 15 years now, more, way more probably. Um, he has been uh, advocating for and trying to, help people get web governance systems put in place. And I've, I've sat in his talks. If you have a chance to ever listen to anything he's done, it is worth your time thoroughly because it's not only good information, but he's a, just an incredible presenter on his own. Um, but there's this idea of, do you put governance in place or does it happen? just naturally over the course of things. And I'm curious, Jeff, with, with what you guys have done, was it, how was governance form? How, how does government happen? Um, 
was it something that you guys were able to sort of dictate that this is how it needs to be? Or do you find that where you have landed is sort of just the result of working right? I think it's a combination of the two. Now, now I've already had two fuzzy navels, so my thinking is going to be more blurred at this point. <laughs> Welcome the rest to the show. <laughs> you're now you're now one of us <laughs> you're saying that governance is something that just kind of just evolves on its own web governance is this is the same as governance in the real world right it it, it developed in the same way and if you look at how civilizations and government was created over 2000 years it's a cycle of ebb and flow. There's times where the people make a decision about it. There's times when autocratic regimes make a decision about how we're going to be governed. Um, it is an evolving process in the way it happens. I would say for us, governance for the centralized system was something that we very, very firmly structured from a policy perspective. And it was it was dictated to the groups when they came in and said, we have a new web content ecosystem here. This is how content is put together for ufhealth.org. Here's the structure. It's a policy that's been signed off by senior leadership. This is the procedure you'll follow. But then once you... You had, you had top-down enforcement from the start. Well, we had top-down enforcement, okay, top enforcement for ufhealth.org. Outside of that, then we okay. start moving into, well, there are six colleges that are part of the Health Science Center, each with their own deans. They have their own governance structure for their websites. It gets more decentralized the farther out you get from that central one. So by the time you get down to a seventh or eighth tier level site that's a lab in a department and a program in a college that's part of UF Health, we don't have direct governance about what happens in that individual lab. That's probably the uh, the PI that's in that lab or whichever faculty is representing the lab. Uh, and they're probably the top level governance structure for that site. They did training with us. We talked with them about best practices about how to manage a website, but do we give them direct monitoring and oversight of that lab page after that? Not so much. One one of the things that I found resistance with before at previous places is sometimes the organizational units will be very hesitant to allow someone else have creative control or content control over what they put out there. But in your experience, um, these your, the units that you kind of oversee or work with, they've kind of embraced it over time and they sort of trust you now that you will do them right, so to speak, and um, give give them good content and that your guys are ex have expertise with this. Has that been your experience then? Well, as a caveat there, in most of those cases, what we're coming in to do is we're doing information architecture and we're doing discussions about what we think works and doesn't work on the page. We don't do actual content writing per se for each one of these websites. I feel if we started okay. to do that, our team is way too small. We would get overwhelmed very quickly. So we're, we're more in that consultant recommendation role as to what they put on that page. But from a perspective okay. of saying, coming in and asking them, what are the business goals of your website? What, are, what is it that your department is trying to do? And then looking very keenly at their website and asking them, do you really think that this content is helping with that mission? 
uh, I think what's really worked and is resonant with that is at this point, they have a good appreciation of the time and effort it takes to maintain their web property. And if we can show them by cutting that chaff and cutting that content debt that they've built up of editing content that nobody's using, that nobody's reading, but they've been rotely updating it or not, and it's way out of date, getting rid of it. So now what you have to work with is now focused and that you can spend the proper amount of time in curating and maintaining that content. I think that resonates a lot with individuals who are asked to maintain a website as an other duty is assigned. And it makes their job a lot easier. It puts it in a frame where they feel like they can handle it because a lot of times they, they'll stop editing pages and stop doing content because it's just too much. Uh, to say I'm going to do this and when I've only got three hours a week to devote to it and I'm doing all of this hmm. other work in the department. And that that kind of tactic and working with departments and telling them, much like I've heard, Michael, I've heard you say this a lot, and you know, doing less better. Uh, <laughs> in that model, that that's the direction they should go with their website. Eventually, they, they come to realize that once they see how unwieldy it's become. Uh, going in the other direction at some point i'm going to put that on a shirt and brand it with the drunken ux <laughs> logo <gasps> you should um and <laughs> as we're going out to break here i want to just uh harken back to what you uh made a point on jeff because it's it really i think puts the governance piece of these problems into perspective when you said that government in general has ebb and flow to it and it will change over time and it will adapt to what mm -hmm. policies need to exist versus not and, and uh, whatnot. And I think that's important to emphasize that there is this very organic, right, process that can take place. And I think that's where in my head I, I struggle with this whole, can you come in and impose governance versus allowing it to sort of occur by virtue of teaching people to just work in the right ways? Um, that organic piece of governance is sort of an interesting and not thoroughly enough researched sort of area of web as of yet. I, I totally agree. When you said that, it made me think of when we, when we launched our template eight years ago, uh, although, although ultimately it was going to be the only template and everybody was going to be required to be in the template as part of, uh, as part of the strategy for ufhealth.org, we never pushed it on individuals to say you had to move into this system. When it was time for us to launch, we had two colleges that were ready to move on the date we launched. And then we, we slowly just started migrating underneath that with units that were ready to move. We allowed it to be organic where those units, when they moved, the individuals who were using it, talked to the other units and said, well, we find this content management system a lot easier to use than what we've been currently doing. And we allowed it to build organically. Uh, we didn't we didn't put people into a migration schedule at the beginning. And over the course of two years, uh, we moved probably, I'd want to say 92% of the web properties into this before before we ran into those That's resistant awesome. units that said- And you had complete- complete buy-in yeah 
And and some of those we didn't move for years. We allowed them to see how the other systems were maturing and and see that it was a better way to go. Um, and and then yeah, at some point, yes, there were ones where sometimes we had to have sit downs with leaders from various different parts of the organization to reach a uh, reach an agreement. But for the most part. It worked exceptionally well. Mm-hmm. I've seen other rollouts in other colleges and universities, which are much more from a that dictated everybody's going to move to the template and you're going to do it right now. And the rollouts are never smooth. I always look back at this one with a lot of awe that we didn't get as much pushback because I would have expected it and, and it didn't happen. And I think because we went with that model of allowing it to develop organically. It helped a lot. Awesome. Well, let's go refill our glasses. Let's give our listeners a break, and we will come back here in roughly 45 seconds of your real-world clock time, and then we'll be talking a little bit about tools, resources, things you should check out, places you should go, stuff you should use, and all of those things to help you execute on strategies and even learn what they are uh, much better. So stick around. We'll be back, and that's what's happening. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. Are you trying to build a case around an interactive map for your school, city, or business? NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. Their team of professional cartographers specialize in map illustrations and are ready to design a rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all your users' devices with responsive maps that scale and blend in seamlessly with your website. Visit them online to request a demo at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Okay, so I think that it's important to start this half of the show by going back to the start of the show. And while we were out and about and doing our, our fancy stuff, I looked up monkey shoulder. Because <laughs> I wanted to know. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to know. And so where does the name come from? And according to the Monkey Shoulder website, our own distillery workers suggested the name Monkey Shoulder after the shoulder strain injury sustained by their predecessor, predecessors who turned the barley by hand as it malted. Huh. So there you go. That's what it has to do with. Apparently there's a an injury that is literally called a monkey shoulder that happens when you turn barley a lot. You, cool. you should remind every drinker about the crippling injuries we sustained in order for them to enjoy this beverage. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> today I learned. It's worth every drop. What can I say? Yeah, today I learned. <laughs> okay, that's I take a sip. Oh. All right. So we're talking about content strategy. And we're a little here, we're a little there, and that's okay. I want to talk about how you learn about this stuff um, and what you can do to help improve, you know, the way you approach content and the way you think about it, not just from a website standpoint, but across the board. Because one of the big things about content, content strategy is that when you do it right, it influences things outside of the web. And that's when you start getting into this whole integrated marketing kind of uh, idea. Um, and so learning this stuff is super important. I want to start at the very most basic idea and that's with books. Um, I mentioned, uh, I think 
I mean, it's been around before that, but I know when Christina Halverson wrote Content Strategy for the Web, I think that was 2009, and that was one of the first big sort of watershed moments for this idea. And it was an idea that she went on to literally create her entire business off of brain traffic. Um, was built on this idea of how important content strategy is. Um, so obviously, I'm going to come right out of the gates and say, if you want to start somewhere, start with her. Um, content strategy for the web, uh, if I, as far as I know, is in its second edition. Um, it's cheap, it's short, and if you flip towards the back, you'll even find my name in there for a mention. <laughs> but it's it really is sort of that very sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not pivotal, but integral uh, piece of this puzzle when it comes to learning about this, that it gives you sort of all of those starter elements, starting components that you can start putting together. And then you can go learn more about those as the individual pieces become more important to the work that you're doing. Um, so I can't recommend that book enough. And I mean, I, I don't think you will look up, you Google, content strategy books there's not going to be a roundup that doesn't include that book so go check out the site we'll be at drunkenux.com in the show notes we'll have a link to that book and of course all these other ones we're going to talk about here in a second um but we'll have links to that book and all the other ones check those out and see which ones fit the bill for you um i think that's fair does that sound fair that sounds fair yep it's not fair a little fair um, what else though? Um, I know, uh, I, years ago and I probably should reread it at this point, but Jenny Reddish's book, letting go of the words is another great one. Not so much about content strategy as it is creating content intelligently, I think is the way I would say it. Um, and that came out in 2006, didn't it? That is such an important piece that helps you figure out how, you know, it talks about how people digest content, how they scan content, what they pick up on, and how you create procedures to make sure that you are keeping content up to date and how you're keeping it, you know, uh, um, uh, prescient to the things that you find important with your site, whether that's trying to sell a product or trying to get people to sign up for a service um, or trying to get people to donate to a nonprofit. Uh, whatever those cases might be. Um, you guys, what else sounds good? I really like uh, Megan Casey's Content Strategy Toolkit. Uh, it's a book that she published on uh, how to start up content strategy, uh, how to conduct an audit, why she put together worksheets and uh, and plans on how to just start it up from the ground up if you've just started to think that maybe your website ought to have a content strategy or you're starting up a site from scratch. Um, and it's a great way to begin uh, building a practice of, of performing content strategy in your organization. That also makes me think, because talking about that reminds me of uh, uh, Confab, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but uh, one of the very first A Book of Parts was I think it was a book part number three was the elements of content strategy by Aaron Kassane. And I remember because they gave us all copies of that at confab and Aaron was mm. the speaker there 
as well because I think she was working with brain traffic at that point in time. Um, but that's another good one. And I, I like, and I, I go back to the same reason like content strategy for the web. The elements of content strategy is a book apart. They're super small. They're quick. Grab them, read them. Uh, the ebook versions are fantastic because they're ebooks. And so you can just toss them on your phone, on your tablet, whatever, sit down and read it. And it doesn't take you but a couple hours to get through all of it. Um, and so that's one as well that I would go check out and look and see um, as far as uh, very l- lightweight. I'm in, in my head, I'm trying to think of this because there are uh, letting go of the words is a relatively good sized book uh, in general. Uh, but there's a lot to be said for folks who approach this in a very lightweight manner. I like that a lot because a lot of folks don't have time to sit down and just, you know, read tome after tome after tome of information. So that's another recommendation. Um, actually, who else? Next, what else do we got? My my next book is actually another a book apart, and that's uh, Design for Real Life, which was written by uh, Sarah Walker Bocher and Eric Meyer. Uh, and it's about how to build content for websites that is relevant for those people in the situations that they have. And it, it's hard it's hard for me to put them into words, especially now in the second half of this podcast. Uh, but <laughs> specifically, the, their book is to... Uh, uh, Eric Meyer suffered a, a real personal tragedy in his life. And the part of this book came out of that and looking at how content is written on websites and uh, can hurt people in the way that it's written because it isn't geared to people that uh, are suffering from crisis. In this case, in particular, a hospital website that uh, was not designed for families or parents whose children were suffering an emergency or how to move around that website and kind of dives into talking about, you know, physical design as well. Uh, but thinking about how we're unintentionally hurting people with the design choices that we make and continuously thinking about that while we're building the websites and being very intentional on in those choices we make in terms of our content and our structure. Uh, that book uh, has has a great deal of emotional resonance. And for me. that's a book of part number 18 uh, for anybody who is keeping track of how many books these folks have released. And they are way <laughs> over that number now as well. So uh, I and the book of part series in general for anybody doing web development, web design, UX, UI work, uh, any of that stuff across the board is pretty worth looking into because you can grab just the in you know the little chunks that you want as opposed to a whole book that maybe has pieces you need anyway um and handley is another one um i believe she's she runs a uh, marketing profs if my memory is correct uh the the marketing professor uh podcast um if that is incorrect if my memory is wrong i'll make a note in the show notes but um i believe that i'm correct on that uh, but she also has i am you are correct. correct good <laughs> i am you are correct but i'm three monkeys into my shoulder so <laughs> I, I love the fact that is sharing in the challenge that is the second half of the show um but her book uh, everybody writes is uh one that 
I will uh, admittedly say that I've only got about halfway through, but the first half that I have gotten through is excellent. <laughs> um, and so I will throw that one out there as a grenade and run away from because there are the, – the thing is if you, <laughs> if you go and just Google or Amazon content strategy books, um, of in the last five years, the number of resources that have become available are huge. Um, I remember cause I, I was, I wrote about content strategy quite a bit around 2009, 10, 11 in that uh, range. Um, I've backed off of it some, um, only because I've become a little bit more development focused. Uh, but that niche and that niche niche niche, um, has grown so much in uh, the recent years that there's a lot of great resources. And I apologize to anybody whose stuff we aren't mentioning um, because there are just a lot of them. So these are only a few recommendations to go and, and check out. Is everybody writes more like everybody hurts by REM or more like the book, the um, children's book? Everybody I, is it significantly more like, the is latter. it like, Everybody writes so you should be comfortable doing this. Um, okay. The, I, I just have. I don't mean to compare. Like I, I don't mean to compare her, uh, her book to that. I, I just uh, pulled it up here just to, as you were asking that just to check. It's uh, 13 bucks for the Kindle version. So um, it's 14 bucks for the paperback. Not bad at all. I have to I have to add one other book that that I really like from a content strategy perspective, even though it's way outside of what we've been talking about. I really love the book Art of Comics by Scott McCloud. Hmm. Uh, it's a book that he wrote oh decades ago now about the power of narrative panel in comic books. And specifically, it really opened my eyes to how decisions about how you layout panels on a page in a comic book can help to convey mood, atmosphere, time, uh, mm. distance, etc. And he breaks down all these different ways that you can do that with a panel and how you can lead people in different narrative directions by how you outline panels on a page and take them through the journey. And it's a really great book for just really thinking about you can kind of extrapolate that to kind of our content models for websites, especially when we start building things in chunks and how people get pages and how, how they're placed on a page and their size and relevance to each other. The panel gutters in between them can help to draw the eye in particular directions and so forth. And uh, I, I just absolutely adore that book. So I would That's urge anybody cool. to run out and get that. And it's really applicable, right? Because so much of the content we make is very bite-sized and grid-based for web. Yeah. And so there's a very interesting sort of analogous relationship between thinking about co uh, comic strips and thinking about the way we lay out content on our websites. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but I'll, I want to go look that up now because just as I'm sitting here processing that, I'm like, that's a very interesting idea to think about how we lead people across our pages and especially with as prevalent as we are with whether you're doing genuine CSS grid or foundation, you know, 12 column layouts, whatever the case may be. But um, that's interesting. I like that. Um, and how we think about that. Good note. Um, conferences. So there isn't a lot devoted to content strategy. Um, I know LavaCon is one. Um, 
LavaCon is not something I have personally been to or know anybody that has gone to. And I don't know, have either Aaron or Jeff, do you guys know, have you been to either of those by chance? Or that by chance? I have not been to LavaCon, no. I have not been either. I, I And if anybody listening has been, I would love to hear what you think about it. Um, just because I'm curious. I don't know. I, I literally know nothing about it. Um, in researching the show, that was one of the names that popped. Um, the one that everybody at this point is familiar with, if you are looking into content strategy, is Confab. Um, Confab started, mm-hmm. I want to say, 2011? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I I think I'm, I was still at Pitt State because um, I spoke at the very first Confab. Um, and so I had to have been at Pitt State still. And so it was right towards the end, I would guess. But Confab is the conference that Christina Halverson started. Um, through, uh, I don't know if I, I should say through brain traffic. I don't know if that's the right way to frame that at this point, but she started it as part of what she was working on with brain traffic and elsewhere. Um, and that was sort of the content strategy conference that has now grown. Um, I know, uh, Jeff, you'd mentioned, right. They do a higher ed specific confab now, right? They they did uh, last year. Uh, they contracted back down just to the central conference. So okay. um, I, I think I think in upcoming years it's just going to be the single confab central Maybe. in Minneapolis. Uh, but I've 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 been to the higher ed one for three years. I went to that one for three years, and I went to confab central uh, last year for the first time. And there is, uh, and Jeff has mentioned it, I know we've mentioned it many times, the, the High Ed Web Conference, um, they have a content track. It's not, you know, a dedicated conference, but they do dedicate one of their, what is it, six tracks this year, Jeff? That's correct. Um, uh, shameless plug, I'm one of the co-chairs of the marketing content and social strategy uh, track at High Ed Web, so... Please come. It's going to be a fantastic conference and a wonderful group of speakers. No, <laughs> but uh, but they do. They they've got a track that is basically focused on just this topic. And there is having been to that conference, and, and we say, yeah, it's a higher ed conference. I don't care. The stuff they talk about is so applicable to anything that you're doing. I don't care. Um, it it really is useful for if you're in, you know aerospace design if you're in automotive sales real estate whatever um that information can be incredibly useful to you um i don't know if you can sneak in under you know a false uh, pseudonym or something on the registration um i don't know how tough they they check those uh those deals don't don't tell us jeff we don't want to know we want to keep the uh the the mystery uh but um if you have a chance though, to talk to those folks or, or read about what's going on on Twitter with those conversations, um, that's great information unto itself as well. Um, so those are three opportunities um, in terms of if you're looking for professional development conference type setups. Um, I, I can I could recommend one other conference in there as okay. well. Um, the uh, design. The Design and Content Conference uh, is held every year in Vancouver in July. Uh, it, uh, it was just last weekend, I believe. Uh, and that's put on by a, a company called Republic of Quality, uh, run by Stephen Shannon Fisher. Um, and that's a, 
it's a two-day conference and it's um, very similar to what we talked about as the subject of design for real life. It's very much intentionally looking at how content affects people on websites and how our design decisions uh, affect others. And that's a, that's a really powerful, strong conference. Uh, and I'd recommend individuals check that one out as well. That, that sounds great. Unfortunately, I am not allowed in Canada anymore due to an, an unfortunate incident involving um, some umbrellas and a very small Beetlejuice statue. Long story. Wait, are you, is that, are you serious? What? We need another How hour. How do I make that up? <laughs> that's the real question. <laughs> I don't know. I can make up some pretty wacky shit. Well, while you stew on that, let's talk a little bit about tools. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not one at all. Um, hey, let me tell you, when the monkey comes out of this shoulder, I get a little squirrely. This metaphor is getting weird. Uh, uh, let's talk about tools. Um, content, part content strategy, again, it's very broad, very broad issue. And so tools factor into how you implement your strategy because when you're talking about governments, when you're talking about content lifecycle, um, the tools inevitably factor into this. And the tools start factoring into the tactics of the strategy um, because they are how you execute the things that you're after. And so these – I'm going to – we're going to throw out the, some tools I've used, some tools Jeff's used, some tools that I'm sure Aaron has mm -hmm. used. Maybe. I don't know. I've used a few what days. do you do, Aaron? Yeah. Do you even work? We don't know. You just show up here. Yeah. I've never actually seen you in my office. I well, that's because I hide myself very well. <laughs> um, but the these tools are suggestions at best, and you should make sure you take the time to consider is if you're if it's right for your circumstance, and if it's not, is there a similar tool that maybe is more applicable to what you want? Um, one thing we're using right now at work is uh, Trello. And we're using it at a very high level. We're not using it. I, I wouldn't say we are using it tactically at this point. Um, I wouldn't say we're even using it strategically. Um, but we are. I don't know what that means. <laughs> we're using it. You're using it. Um, we have Jerry. an account. Uh, we pay for that account. Yeah. Um, but we are using it, though, to think about <laughs> what we want our strategy to be. So we, we are using it to look at where our opportunities are where our problems are, and where we can help different groups of folks within our company maybe coordinate or improve the service to our users. Um, uh, for those who don't know, I work at a company that we help people like us get jobs, basically. Um, we are a giant job board, for lack of a better term. Um, and so we're always thinking about how that job description looks to the user, how they go about finding that stuff, um, how we make sure that folks can find those jobs easily, um, how they get word of updates and things like that. So we're, we're using Trello as a way to sort of create groups of ideas from stuff that we are, have completed to things we are executing to things we are thinking about or trying to get others to buy in on. And so that's something that we're kind of looking at there from a, it, it's a very much of an idea mapping. That's the word. Um, we're idea mapping with it, but you can use it much more granularly and much more tactically in terms of here is what we have to do. Here's what is happening. Um, and so it's, it's good. It's a very, you know, it's a task management type of system 
Um, is that fair? Do you guys use has have either of you used Trello at all? I've, I've used Trello before, not specifically for content strategy, but I I think that it's a good, it's the ideal tool anytime whatever you're doing is unstructured enough that you could do it with post-it notes, but Trello is better than that. Yeah. I, I want to read just the um, tagline from their site. It says Trello lets you work more collaborative collaboratively and get more done. Trello boards, lists, and cards enable you to organize and prioritize your projects in fun, flexible, and rewarding ways. Basically exactly what you just said. Here's a bunch of post-its <laughs> and because it's a, but I mean, I don't, I don't mean that in a negative way because there are times when that's exactly what you want. You don't want structure. You don't want someone forcing their process on you. You just want to have fucking cards. Up yeah, on they, a they just are trying to perfect. help you organize thoughts. And I think that's what it's really good at. And if those thoughts are very specific, mm. then it's a task management system. If those thoughts are very abstract, right. it's a concept mapping system. So that's, that's what I like about trello from that standpoint um and jeff did you have something oh i was gonna say we we use asana in the same way so depending on what the project is we have we have a uh, uh, structured lists of projects but our, our front end designers very much use the uh the card system in asana the I've, same way i've used trello. it in a couple uh, cases and i agree uh it's it is a very equivalent style tool. Um, we'll link to both of them in the uh, in the show notes for folks who are interested. Um, I have a story for a later date of just an awesome failure of using uh, uh, Asana, Asana, however you want to emphasize the word. Uh, Asana. Trello, Trello, Trello. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Trello. That's a fun story. Side side uh, side thing later. <laughs> Um, okay, so that's Trello. Anyway, no, 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 Trello. Um, what else do we got? Um, Basecamp, right? Everybody uses Basecamp, don't they? For something, somewhere. Um, every uh, everybody has a. I actually, I... <laughs> I. I love how all of us were basically like, yeah. We, we've encountered <laughs> it, right? I haven't used it in a decade, so everybody encounters Basecamp. I've. I... I find Basecamp's ability to find files that I've uploaded into it very <laughs> difficult. And so from a document sharing perspective, a lot a lot of the systems seem to be fairly lacking in that capacity in a way that I would like it to be structured. I was just gonna I was gonna say that I, if I recall correctly, Basecamp is at its best when you have uh like if you are a firm that interact with clients and and that's the kind of engagement you have typically that seems to be what i recall basecamp excelling at and not so much when you have like ongoing organizational interactions that you have to do right and and again it's a decade ago that i used it so it's like i know they're always moving fast and breaking stuff so it's possible they've fixed that and do things differently so check it out don't just hit uh what else content strategy jeff this is your wheelhouse at uh uf health at or in your wheelhouse at least um i've used buffer and hootsuite myself for various purposes um i don't know if you've got anything yeah. different from a scheduling and you know uh prioritizing and directing you know 
one of the things that I think about uh, in terms of like social strategy, especially is how we make sure that we say the same thing, but in contextually appropriate ways for Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and those things. Um, I don't know. Are you guys using anything in particular there that you find helpful? So we, we had been using Hootsuite and then using Sprout Social and we moved away from all of those from a scheduling perspective to try and do things natively in the platform or wherever we can. Oh, we do do a lot of scheduling, which uh, which I know if Todd Sanders listens to this, he'll he'll berate me about later. But uh, just from a time perspective, uh, it's much easier for us to do pre-scheduling. But um, I've tried to move away from those platforms. We're doing a lot of our uh, long-term editorial calendar planning now in a tool called Airtable. Uh, Airtable is a mm. online relational database tool that allows you to uh, construct out spreadsheets uh, based off of your needs. You can add formulas and different things into it. Now, I can't do the pre-scheduling for our social media but as a tool for monitoring what we're doing, uploading assets, it works really well for us. We've been able to set it up that we have a tagging system and that we can tag what department and what author it belongs to, what the subject matter was, uh, dates and times. And now we're going back in and dropping in whatever we got from analytics on the performance on the post into that same database. So rather than having to go to all three or four platforms at the time that we need to pull reports, We'll have all the information in one location that we can pull it from and hopefully utilize the database too to glean some information from. Uh, Eric? Airtable's cool. I've, I've used it um, briefly. I was playing with it in another platform and I can't remember the name of the other platform. And to give you an idea of why, it's because it's the one that went out of business, <laughs> <laughs> but it did the same basic thing. It just happened to do it in a way that was favorable to how I needed yeah. to do it at that point in time. But Airtable is very cool if you need to check it out and not just for content strategy. If you are trying to just understand data in a way that doesn't involve physically writing SQL queries, Airtable is yeah. pretty cool. And it's it, highly mobile friendly. I, we, I feel in our office, we haven't even scratched the surface of what we could do with it. We've uh, we started to use it for our content audits uh, during our upcoming redesign of our WordPress template, our front-end designers were using it for their mood boards, for going out and pulling examples of other sites and their functionality and building out a card view of all those design elements so they could go back and refer to them. And it's, it's rapidly in the last year become a really valuable tool set across all of our system, not just for us on the content side. So uh, I've been really excited with that one. Yeah. Before we tap out for the evening, I want to hit on a couple kind of high level things, but they're the sort of things that I would just want to make sure people think about. One, of course, is um, anytime that you're trying to get into like the governance and workflow pieces of strategy, whatever content management system you're using, it has tools for that. Those tools will differ based on your platform, but virtually all of them have a permissions model an editor model, um, whether natively or through plugins, they will probably have some sort of review process that can take place um, or alerting on old content to be reviewed. 
um, make sure that whatever you're doing, whatever, when you think about content life cycle pieces, um, and so we're talking about, you know, you, you write a blog, the blog goes out there and it's pretty much a snapshot in time. But, um, when we say, let's use the higher ed model and we say, here's a description of this course that probably needs to be reviewed at least annually, if not semi-annually, depending on what your catalog uh, dictates. And so setting up times for somebody to review that and somebody to sign off on it can be very useful. I don't know outside of the most lightweight, like if you were using Ghost, Ghost probably doesn't have anything for this, but WordPress certainly has plugins for it. Um, Magnolia, uh, uh, Omni Update, I know in higher ed, I know they've got it. Um, thinking in the uh, you know, .cms versus... Uh, others in terms of the the private sector space, they all have tools for this. So if, don't forget to think about what you have right on hand that can help you build. You know, if if organically, if what you're after is going uh, in that direction, use the tools to kind of help you enforce what you want to go after, and you can kind of build a governance model out of that, assuming it's right for you. Um, always, yeah. Kind of keep a pulse certainly i would i'd like to build off of that and and recommend that people think about how when you do uh look for those opportunities where you're editing things on the website how it can also affect the ecosystem outside of just the web in your organization uh when you were describing that i was thinking uh you had you had chris weekman on uh just a few weeks ago didn't yeah, you yeah yeah uh so he's he's also on the UF Health web team, and one of the one of the things that he worked on last year for us that was a challenge was uh, for our intranet. We maintain all the policies and procedures and forms for UF Health, um, and making sure that individuals had the most up to date forms can sometimes be a challenge. Someone goes to the website, they print the form, they print sixty copies of the form, the forms updated on the website. Uh, but they don't necessarily know that the form that they have in the clinic is now out of date and they need a newer version of the form. Uh, so uh, he built a back-end piece for our policy section that if anybody ever uplo uh, uploads a new version of a PDF of a former policy for that, anyone who's downloaded it in the past that's been tagged to their profile. So it shoots them an email to let them know that that policy and form that they downloaded on that earlier date is now out of date, provides them a link over back to the policy section that says you need to destroy the copies that you have in the office and print a brand new copy of it to disseminate to the office. Um, and that that solved a huge operational uh, issue that was not web-oriented. It was a physical environment issue, but it was a way that we could extrapolate out of what we were doing in our office to help the entire organization. So looking for those opportunities where you can do that too is really critical for changing the entire ecosystem. Yeah, and just to, A, that's awesome. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, that was, was throw totally everything cool. Else, take, <laughs> take everything we've talked about, throw it out the window. If you need a tool to help you, whether you're doing a content audit, whether you're doing a content inventory, I'm sorry, I'm getting deep into the shoulder here. Uh <laughs> Um, I, I can I can feel my words coming out uh, clumsily out of my mouth. 
Um, we're, and this bay is, is basically a simian rotator cuff is what you have. Yes, yeah, I'm, yeah those words. So, or no, um, simian scapula. <laughs> simian scapula, there you go. If you are... You're welcome, a, monkey shoulder. A solo freelancer who doesn't know how to get into this, you're, you don't have a ton of money at your disposal, you're scared of signing up for a, you know a, a account on one of these sites. Um, Jeff, you were mentioning earlier before the show as we talked about just get into spreadsheets, get into your Google spreadsheets and get creative. Yeah. It's free. There's so much you can do in that area in terms of, um, we talk about Trello and Asana, right? Trello and Asana are just very generic, but pretty task management systems. Um, Airtable, it's a relational database. At the same time, it's just really putting a pretty front end on connecting tables together. You can do all of that yeah. in Google Sheets. I would say if you have nowhere to start, look at what you can do there and just get creative, get pretty, make sure your permissions are set up well so you can share them with people, um, you know, with the folks you're collaborating with, with your clients, with whomever you need to work with. Um, we have, and just to give you an idea, um, our company has, we have Trello, we have Jira. Um, we have all of these tools at our disposal um and we still use google spreadsheets for tons of our collaboration mm -hmm. um because the tools my team uses yeah. aren't necessarily the same tools our marketing team uses because they are separate and they are doing their own thing and so even within one company that getting that coordination can be a little difficult so we all have a google apps account so we can set up a spreadsheet share it and work that way uh so don't discount that. I think this is similar to this is similar to what we talked about in one of the really early episodes about analytics where we were just saying the the right tool is the one that works right for you. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So like we we use we use Google Sheets um we did a redesign at Cornell a couple of years ago and um we used Google Sheets a lot for that and you know, for the IA restructuring and the site mapping and everything else. And it's all we needed. Like it, you just, we just needed to capture data and rows and columns and be able to share it. And like, that was literally it. It doesn't not like gets the job done. You know, be pragmatic. Be pragmatic. That's the lesson for today's episode. Jeff, man, I want to thank you so much <laughs> for staying on with us late tonight and taking the time to talk with us. I want to make sure before we take off and, and, and tune this thing out, I want to give the floor to you. Tell folks where they can find you, what you've got going on, anything else that you want people to know about you. Um, the floor is yours. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm currently between websites right now. So <laughs> the easiest way to find me right now is on social media. Uh, you can find me under the name Kuratoa on pretty much every social media channel. Can you spell that? That's a K. Yep. Of course I will. K-U-R-A-T-O-W-A. Um, so I'm primarily on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram. But I guess you could find me on Pinterest if you really wanted to. Or any of those small things that popped up in the last couple of years that I signed up for for whatever reason. Like Peach and... Oh, oh, yeah, I've got a Snapchat channel, too. Uh, you won't find me there very often. And you find me on Pokemon Go under Kuratoa as well. Um, what else have I got going on? 
Uh, well, we've got, uh, I already mentioned before, I'm a co-chair with Jackie Ventrano for uh, HideWeb, uh, the annual conference this year, which is in Sacramento, California. Congrats. That'll be October 21st through the 24th. Uh, I, I hope that if you're in higher ed and you're listening to this, that you will definitely be there. I think uh, for the uh, it is the conference that delivers the most value for its money uh, in that sphere. Uh, we, in addition to our track sessions, we got six track sessions with about 60 presentations in them. We also have poster sessions, lightning talks, two keynotes this year. Uh, uh, we have the academies beforehand, which are uh, highly uh, intensive uh, areas around technical, around leadership, and around UX and design that take place before the conference. And then we have workshops also before and after the conference. So there's there's a ton of things that you can take advantage of in that sphere. Um, and that group literally changed my direction uh, of my career in higher ed. and. I can't speak more highly of them. So I definitely hope if you have that opportunity, you'll go to that. Uh, personally, what have I got coming up? I'm going to Dragon Con in a month, nice. which will be awesome. I'm going to take my kids to that. If you find yourself at Dragon Con, you want to find me, I'll be cosplaying as J. Jonah Jameson for the three <laughs> days I'm there. Oh, they don't. Bring me a picture. I'll be carrying swag. So if you bring me a picture of Spider-Man, I will give you swag. That seems oddly appropriate. Um, and between now and then, I'll be sitting around with my kids trying to place some kittens that we found on the side of the road the other day. So we've got nine kittens in the house right now on top of our three cats and a dog. Uh, we've homed four of them. So we have another five that we need to find a home for uh, in the next couple of weeks. So if you know anybody in Florida who's interested in a kitten, I'm willing to drive to find them a home. So just tell them to find me online at Kuratoa. Awesome. Thanks, man. We appreciate you jumping on tonight with us. And to everybody else, join us back here in about one minute, and we will wind this show down. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Folks, thanks for listening and tuning in this week. Let us know what your favorite content strategy resources are, whether those are blogs, books, conferences, tools, whatever the case may be. Um, you can check out our show notes at drunkenux.com. 
We're going to have all of the links to the books and the tools and whatnot that we talked about in today's episode linked there as well. So swing by and check that out. Um, Jeff, I want to thank you for coming on, certainly, because that was awesome. Um, We will see you in October, and I may sneak a little side microphone into your face hole and... (laughs) We may chat again there. I don't make any promises not to do that. So Work, work that monkey shoulder. <laughs> That's right. Uh, thanks for Ed. Be sure to connect with us on the Facebooks and the Twitters slash Drunken UX. Let us know your favorite content strategy tools on there. And also at DrunkenUX.com slash Slack. Come chat with us. It's fun. There's jipes. And be sure to keep listening. We will be back on Wednesday as well with a brand new episode of Real Time Overview where we review all of your favorite or, you know, popular or things we find that we like. I don't care. Uh, News articles, um, (laughs) tutorials, posts, whatever the case may be. If you have anything you would like to let us know about so that we feature it on that episode, swing by the website. We've got a form there. You can fill it out. Tweet us, Facebook us, whatever. We would love to know what you're reading, what you find helpful so that we can share it with all of our listeners. For now... Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, listeners. Thank you. Until next time, I have only one piece of advice, and that piece of advice is to keep your personas close and your users closer. To be